you only have one chance to make a good first impression. That's what my choir director in college always used to say. You only have one chance to make a good first impression. And for our choir, that translated into us entering into each and every concert that we ever performed in. Because I think he knew, and I agree with him, how you enter somewhere says something about you. In a way, your entrance describes the kind of person you are. It sets the tone or the mood. In fact, it's a social statement. In a way, how you enter a space speaks to who you are or the kind of person you are. Take, for instance, Professor Snape and the Harry Potter franchise of films. Do you know who Professor Snape is? I bet from this clip from Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, you can discover all you need to know about Professor Snape by the way he enters the room when he's substituting for a teacher unbeknownst to Harry and his friends. His entrance speaks volumes to the kind of teacher, but also the kind of person he is. Let's see the clip here. You can discover all you need to know about Professor Snape just from that entrance that he's cold and collected, maybe a little strict and mean, kind of scary. But conversely, maybe someone else might barge into a room completely different with a different kind of energy or an ethos about them. Why don't we take uh, Chris Farley entering in onto the David Letterman show in February 1996. Letterman even described this as the best entrance ever. Take a look. Old friend, Chris Farley. a lot about Chris Farley just from how he entered into this talk show. Kind of the exact opposite kind of tone or reality than the first clip. But you get all that by how he entered the room. Palm Sunday is about another person's entrance. Some of your Bibles might label it as a triumphal entry, even though the text doesn't tell us that. Palm Sunday is the annual holiday on the church calendar that we take time to remember Jesus' Christ's enter into the holy capital city of Jerusalem. Jesus has arrived, and he is making his way into town. I think Jesus is making a statement regarding who he is with his entrance. Because there's a lot of setup on Jesus' part on for how he's going to enter in through the city gates. A good amount of detail is given for, on, for him simply entering into town 
All four Gospels record this event, so it must have been important enough for all of them to jot it down. I think Jesus intentionally communicates something about himself with his entrance. And so if you'll permit me, I'd like to offer some thoughts this morning concerning this probably familiar text. Because I think Jesus' entrance is asking a question, one that is asked at the end of Matthew's account by the residents of Jerusalem. Who is this? But to get to this question in our text this morning, I think we need to back up a little bit. I was rereading the Gospel of Matthew this week, and I had noticed a peculiar trend that I had probably previously not paid much attention to. But there are a wide variety of identity questions in the Gospel of Matthew. Throughout the entire Gospel, everyone is asking and inquiring as to who Jesus is. Who is he? Where is he? What is he? Everyone is asking about Jesus because he is unlike anyone they've encountered before. Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews in Matthew 2.2? The first words uttered by any human characters in the entire gospel of Matthew is a question by the Magi pertaining to Jesus. They're on a special assignment looking for the recently born Christ child and the birthplace speaks to who Jesus is. What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? After Jesus awakens and calms the storm, all the disciples can do is utter this question. Their wonder and speculation speaks to the identity of this individual capable of authority over the forces of nature. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees notice the company Jesus is hanging out with, and they go behind his back to ask his disciples about what kind of person would do such a thing. But Jesus overhears them, and his response speaks to the kind of person he is and the mission he's carrying out. Can this be the son of David? Nearing the halfway point of of Matthew, the crowd start to make their own guesses as to who he is. And while the Pharisees write Jesus off as a minion of Beelzebub, the bystanders witnessing the remarkable deeds of Jesus firsthand are catching on to who he is. Where did this man get his wisdom and these deeds of power Now everyone is trying to formulate a logical explanation for why Jesus of Nazareth is the way he is. While only the Magi were concerned about Jesus' origins at first, now everyone is concerned with where he is from, including his parents, his siblings. There has to be a reason for why this guy is the way he is. But who do you say that I am? It's Jesus' turn to ask an identity question. Many people have been making their assertions about him, yet here at the crux of the Gospel of Matthew, he is not concerned with what onlookers think of him. Jesus is more interested in what those closest to him think, those who seemingly know him the best. So he flips the identity question around and presses the disciples to make their definitive claim regarding who they think he is based on all the evidence provided to them. Simon Peter answers, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. All these questions have been building to this confession, and it's a correct confession, in fact. And one would think that the disciples have figured it all out, and they don't need, no longer need any further coaching on Jesus' part. But Jesus knows that while they say with their lips the right language or titles, in their hearts and minds they have not quite fully grasped who he truly is. From this point on, Jesus is going to put their accurate conclusion on also their preconceived notions regarding what this conclusion entails to the test. 
Jesus is going to push them to redefine the Messiah on his terms. So this gets us back to our reading this morning. While the disciples have identified Jesus as the Messiah, I'd wager there are still lingering some questions or expectations in their minds. One of the big ones, I think, would be, is he the king? If Jesus is the Messiah, then is he the king of the Jews? Like the wise men from the east, they want to know if Jesus is truly the long-awaited political savior and the rightful monarch of Israel. Is Jesus the heir of King David who was prophesied to come and take his rightful seats on his ancestor's throne? Many in the Gospel of Matthew have already identified Jesus as the son of David. You do not need to look far back to see in the previous chapter two blind men in Jericho right before our text this morning call out to Jesus saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Is Jesus the king we have been waiting for? The Messiah was believed to be a political figure, so why wouldn't Jesus be a king? And if Jesus is indeed the rightful king, he is on the precipice of entering in the city of his ancestor's namesake and the location of his throne that belongs to him. Is he the king? In our text this morning, Jesus will not teach them through his actions what the messianic king is in fact truly like as opposed to the fantasies they've conjured up. On the Mount of Olives, outside the city, Jesus makes an odd request. He sends two disciples into a neighboring village to fetch for him a donkey to ride on. Jesus is not going to be entering in on foot as is customary of pilgrims coming to the city for Passover. Rather, Jesus is going to offer a glimpse into his identity. I liked what one commentary described this as a lived parable. Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem to exemplify what kind of king he truly is because he is fully aware of how he's going to exit later that week. He is letting his actions speak louder than words. In a way, Jesus is fully aware of the messianic expectations of his actions. However, he's going to turn them on their heads. So for those that have heard this text preached year after year, you've likely heard Jesus' procession into Jerusalem being reminiscent of processionals by secular governments, officials, and military leaders. And in the context of the New Testament, the Romans would engage in such a practice. Roman governors and generals would have been met by the public when they arrived to a town with massive fanfare and adoration. No doubt earlier that day, Pontius Pilate would have been greeted by such an assembly in Jerusalem. But this cultural practice even predates the Romans. Conquering kings and rulers throughout the ancient world would parade through cities celebrated by their subjects for their heroic deeds. Riding in on a war horse, followed by their decorated army, was a testament that this political and military figure was victorious and worthy of praise. But for cities under the thumb of a foreign power like Jerusalem was, the fear often was in their minds that they did not greet to the satisfaction of the one that conquered them. They potentially faced annihilation. But with this in mind, when you read Jesus' entrance, it pales in comparison Judged in the light of any ordinary standards of regal splendor, military display, political campaigning, or effective advertising, it's rather pathetic and anticlimactic. Jesus rode from Bethany upon a donkey, not a horse, followed by an entourage of average Joes, not soldiers, 
and welcomed by a motley crowd of folks that followed him from the suburbs of Jerusalem, but not from the city itself. The people welcoming Jesus into the city, the text implies, were not from Jerusalem. Rather, the crowds crying out, Hosanna, were already following Jesus before he entered into the city. If Jesus is the king, his own city didn't even welcome him. In fact, the text tells us they didn't even know who he was. Is Jesus the king? Jesus is a king, but not the king people expected or wanted. When compared to the processional for someone like Caesar parading into town after a military campaign, the processional orchestrated by Jesus does not necessarily evoke the emotions of triumph. But perhaps that doesn't matter. Maybe the thought crossing the minds of those throwing palm branches. Appearances may be deceiving, The procession started according to specified conditions by a prophecy. For those who knew it, they knew the Messianic king would enter under such guise. But once Jesus crosses city limits, maybe things will look different. But Jesus' procession failed to end in Messianic style. Jesus did not leap to the pinnacle of the temple, rend down clouds of heaven, summon a vast army of angels, and expel the Romans from power, and compel them to bow their faces to the earth before his throne, and acknowledge him to be sovereign. That wasn't what he did. That was the Messiah that they all expected, but Jesus did none of those things. But Jesus followed the prophecy that Matthew quotes from Zechariah 9.9 to a T, right? Its placement by Matthew before the event emphasizes that Jesus was actively fulfilling this messianic prophecy. And I think Jesus knew what he was doing. He's making the scene on purpose. He is setting things into motion that is expected of the Messiah, but Jesus is wanting to intentionally upset a people's expectations for not only what a king looks like, but also what the messianic king looks like. He knows what his entrance is communicating but did you, catch, did you catch the key adjective in Matthew's quotation? It's not accidental. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble. Perhaps the crowds read the first part and then stopped reading. They were diligent to wait for a king, but failed to read the core attributes of this king. But I can't fault them for reading the quotation incorrectly because Matthew omits part of Zechariah 9.9, though you'd likely not notice it unless you've read Zechariah recently. If you flip in your Bibles to Zechariah 9.9, it reads this, Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey. So of course the crowds pay attention. If they paid attention in Sunday school, they would gravitate to the phrase Matthew leaves out. But Matthew cuts out part of the prophecy to place emphasis on the true nature of Jesus as a different kind of king in light of what Matthew will know later that week. Humility, or a better rendering of the word, is gentleness. This is the key descriptor of Jesus' kingship. While humble and gentle are often interchangeable, gentleness is preferred because it underlines the upside-down kind of monarchy of the Messiah seen in the person of Jesus. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Jesus has arrived to the capital city with no sword in hand, but hands ready to receive nails. Jesus deserved to sit on the royal throne, but he'll end up hanging on a cross. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, vulnerable to whatever his enemies will do to him. The one entering with a picture of triumph will exit in a picture of defeat. This 
is King Jesus. The kingship of Jesus looks more like a person, a certain kingdom, wherein there was a handsome prince searching for a woman worthy enough to be his wife and to become queen of the land. One day, while running an errand for his father, the prince passed through a poor village. As he glanced out the window of his carriage, his eyes fell on a beautiful peasant maiden. During the ensuing days, he often passed by the young lady and soon fell in love with her by sight. But he had a problem. How could he seek her hand? He could command her to marry him, but the prince wanted someone who would marry him out of love, not coercion. He could show up at her door in this splendid uniform and a gold carriage drawn by six horses, attendants in tow, and bearing a chest of jewels and gold coins. But then how could he know if she truly loved him or if she was just overawed and overwhelmed with his splendor? But finally he came up with a solution. He stripped off his royal robes, put on common dress, moved into the village, and got to know her without revealing his identity. As he lived among the people, the prince and the maiden became friends, shared each other's interests, and talked about their concerns. But by and by, the young lady grew to love him for who he was because he had first loved her. This is the kind of king Jesus is. The prince of peace himself laid aside the robes of glory, garbed himself as a peasant, became a human being, and moved into our village, onto our planet, to woo us to himself. His kingship is marked by humility and gentleness, not coercion, manipulation, or violence. Like the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8, through 8, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count himself equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So perhaps the triumphal entry should be relabeled something as the conspicuously meek entry. Jesus is putting on display the true nature of what his identity as a king looks like, and it's nothing like the monarchs of his day nor the expectations of the Messiah. Is he the king? He is, but not any sort of king you've heard of. This is the king we celebrate today. Our praises and adorations are to this king who did not think it too lowly or humiliating to take on human flesh, live a sinless life, innocently suffer excruciating pain, and sacrifice himself where we belonged. Unlike politicians who talk a good game but do not deliver on results, Jesus is unlike anyone else because he actually did what he said he would do. He set aside his crown of glory to put on a crown of thorns. But catch this, church, catch this. The key here is not only knowing and believing this about Jesus, but also acting on it. Do you know and identify with, G- with this King Jesus as opposed to a different King Jesus? Are you devoted to this King Jesus, or are you still waiting for a different King Jesus? That is the question forced on the crowds, which we see as we continue reading the story As Jesus is rounding the corner to make his way into Jerusalem, the crowds begin spreading their cloaks on the road. Matthew even tells us that some even cut branches from the trees to spread across it. The notable detail of palms is actually only provided in John's telling of the story, but there's no doubt that this is the kind of plants Matthew is envisioning. 
And Jesus likely sits side saddle on an unassuming donkey with the masses expressing their praise and adoration as he passes. Perhaps imagery of a ticker tape parade or confetti being thrown is a great modern parallel for us. But all around this parade, the people are chanting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew phrase, save now. Its usage in the first century by those in Jewish context would be like someone just exclaiming, Hallelujah or Hurrah. So these people are dancing around Jesus saying, save us, save us. A rather explicit indication of their assumption that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. But once the crowd enters into the city limits, Matthew's gospel tells us a few peculiar details. Word quickly spreads throughout the metropolis concerning the entrance and arrival of Jesus. And the text tells us that this breaking news causes the whole city to be go into turmoil or to be stirred. The original meaning behind this reaction by the city is more akin to being shaken by a seismic event. The arrival of the Lord's anointed one has disrupted all of Jerusalem as if it was just struck by an earthquake. This is powerful imagery by the Gospel of Matthew. This language of shaken will be used again at the end of the week, at Jesus' death, but also at the empty tomb. But notice that this earth-shaking news is met with a question by the population of Jerusalem. Who is this? Apparently, those in Jerusalem have no experience or knowledge of Jesus of Nazareth, according to Matthew. Despite Jesus' arrival causing quite a ruckus, this, those in the capital city are largely unaware of this man who has just entered into town. Who is this? It sounds awfully alike Jesus' question, but who do you say that I am? Those in Jerusalem want to know what the big deal is with this guy who just entered in riding on a donkey. Who is this? So the crowds waving palm branches reply, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It's an interesting answer. On the one hand, they previously celebrated Jesus being the son of David, so the crowds could have replied with the Messiah. Or given the kind of processional they just threw, they could have said king of the Jews, even though the Romans may not have liked that answer. But they settle with prophet, which is also not a wrong answer. Jesus was indeed a prophet. In fact, Jesus is said to be a prophet like Moses, but even greater than Moses. But what this exchange teaches us is a critical detail concerning those waving palm branches and celebrating Jesus' entry. Their Christology is correct, but rather they do not transform their words into deeds. Let me rephrase it a different way. When the crowds cry, Hosanna, and this is the prophet, they use the right words, but they miss the point. They have all the notes, but none of the music. They have the theology down pat, but they end up rejecting Jesus and calling for his execution. Knowing the truth is not the same thing as doing the truth. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, we are just as susceptible to those who originally accompanying Jesus into town. We may identify Jesus correctly with our lips, but deny him with our actions. Believing is not enough. You have to make a commitment. 
J. Edwin Orr, a popular Baptist pastor, missiologist, and evangelist in the 20th century, loved to speak to university students. When he had such an audience, he would simply pick one of the young women from the audience and ask her to stand, and then he would ask this question, do you believe in marriage? When the woman said yes, he would follow up by asking why. The young woman would usually explain that she believed in marriage because it's an institution that gives uh, stability to sexual commitments, provides a good context for raising children, provides an assurance of deliverance from loneliness throughout your life. He would then declare, you're married. The young woman would be counted to protest and say, no, I'm not. To which Dr. Orr would point out that if she really believed in marriage, then it could be said that she was married. But the answer of the young woman was often, I haven't I haven't got a man yet, and I haven't made a commitment. Exactly, Dr. Orr would respond. It's not enough to believe. You have to make a commitment. And there has to be someone to whom you make that commitment. And so it is with being a follower of Christ. Affirming the truth concerning Jesus is not enough. A commitment must be made. It's not enough to exclaim, Hosanna, and rightfully label Jesus correctly. You have to be be in full alignment with his agenda and programming. You have to imitate the humility and meekness he displays in his entrance. And so I ask you, church, in your words and deeds, is your allegiance with the king on display obvious? Are you satisfied with the kind of king you see in Jesus And do your actions speak to that? Because if we're not careful, we'll wind up just like the crowds a few days later. The crowds wanted a coronation, but they'll eventually want is an execution. The same crowds chanting Hosanna will be the same ones a few days later shouting, crucify him. When Jesus did not meet their expectations for a monarch or a messiah, they got rid of him. When Jesus did not check all their boxes, they disposed of him. While this morning we celebrate Palm Sunday and acknowledging Jesus as King in a way that Jerusalem failed to do so, I want to caution each and every one of us to guard against the pride of thinking we are somehow immune to denying Jesus like the crowds, and even like some of Jesus' own disciples will eventually do after this parade into Jerusalem a few days later. Who is this? How do you answer that question? Given all the things you've heard and experienced with Jesus of Nazareth, how do you respond to that question? Who is he to you? That's the question we all must answer one day. This morning we began our observation of Holy Week. This is the week Jesus moves closer and closer to his crucifixion, but also his resurrection. I hope you will join us this Friday at 7, or 7 p.m. for a service commemorating Christ's journey to the cross. But I also hope to see you next week for Easter Sunday, where we'll be celebrating the resurrection. Perhaps the resurrection is actually the true triumphal entry of Jesus exiting the tomb. Have you considered that? We'll have two services that morning, one at 8.30 and another at 10.30 More details can be found elsewhere, but we hope to see you there. Who is Jesus to you? Who is this? What do you want from Jesus? A coronation? 
or a cross.